Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Now that we've talked about the the priesthood session, let's jump into Sunday morning, and uh, and let's maybe hit a little bit on this. Uh, for me, the climactic talk is Elder Uchtdorf at the end, but I think I want to save that. So I don't know if maybe you've got some thoughts to begin with, uh, Radio Free Mormon. If you've got maybe something that you want to draw attention to that happened on Sunday morning. Well, sure. Really quick, President Monson, of course, spoke for, I think, about three or four minutes. He spoke twice, I think, during general conference, once here and once at the beginning of priesthood session, uh, both times, I think, for less than four minutes. Um, and what he said here, Sunday morning session, is simply uh, something that's said over and over and over in the church. You've heard it many times. I've heard it many times, but I notice when he says it, once again, in conference, it's the faulty logic that you need to pray about the Book of Mormon, and if you receive a witness that it is true, then it means a host of other things. A whole bunch of dominoes then start falling. And what he said was, if it is true, and I solemnly testify that it is, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. And we've heard that before. And that makes a certain amount of sense. Then Joseph Smith was a prophet, or at least he was inspired when he translated the Book of Mormon. But he goes further, he says, Then Joseph Smith was a prophet who saw God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. So now he takes it to, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith saw God and Jesus Christ. Then the first vision is true. And not just the first vision is true, but the 1838 account of the first vision is true, as opposed to the 1832 account that Joseph Smith wrote. And he goes from there, uh, along the well-worn tracks that we both know. He says, because the Book of Mormon is true, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's Church on the earth. And, of course, the problem is, is that the LDS Church is not the only Restorationist Church that considers the Book of Mormon to be Scripture. Yeah, and I heard this too. In fact, of all those things you just said, the one that kind of just poked me a little bit more than the rest was uh, was the one regarding that if we know the Book of Mormon is true, we know that Joseph saw God the Father and Jesus Christ. Because you have people like Richard Bushman right now in Mormonism 
giving them, them personally making public statements, giving more credibility to the 1832 account. And when we realize that the apologists like to say that, you know, there's the idea of false memory, there's the idea of different audiences, there's the idea of Joseph maybe being more reserved depending on who he's talking to. When you add all those up, the, the one thing you get to the bottom of when you get to the 1832 account is that it's Joseph's it's it's written in Joseph's own hand, the only account I think written in his own hand. It's written in his personal journal, right? So if there's one place you're going to write and and no and you're not going to be impacted by anybody else's perspective, it's in your journal where nobody else gets to read it, nobody else gets to see it, and and you get to just write to yourself. And and you would think being timeline being the closest to the actual event and being written in his own personal journal would secure the 1832 account from a scholarship standpoint as being the most, um, the most true to the actual event, the most authentic to the actual experience. And again, I, I get like the 1838 account might be the most accurate one. I just think from a logic rationality and from a scholarship way of evaluating historicity, the 1832 account would be, would be the closest thing we have to what actually occurred, occurred in that grove. Yes, I agree with you. And by the way, just in case there's anybody out there who's listening who doesn't know, the 1832 account is the one where Joseph Smith recounts seeing one being, Jesus Christ, as opposed to the Father and the Son in later accounts. Right, right. And President Monson then goes on, uh, I stopped at a comma, because he not only says, because the Book of Mormon is true, the LDS Church is true, he also says, and the holy priesthood of God has been restored for the benefit and blessing of his children. So he even goes beyond that and says, if the Book of Mormon is true, if you have a spiritual witness of the Book of Mormon, then the priesthood has been restored. The only thing he doesn't say, which is probably because humility forbids him, is the final thing that we usually hear in this, which is that President Monson is a prophet of God. Right. Could you almost imagine him saying that? Like, and because you know all of these things, you know I am a prophet. Like, you're right. Like, that would that would cross the line of kind of what feels right. And you never see him or anybody else kind of take that next step in terms of being in the office of prophet. Now you'll see members of the Quorum of the Twelve point to President Monson and, and call him such. Um, I guess the other thing too, what strikes me is as you go through this list of things, if this is true, then that's true. And if that's true, then that's true. What, if we kind of just knock away these pillars of what, what we're calling them, just generally speaking, it's, it's almost as if we're saying, if the Book of Mormon is true, then a literal orthodox narrative is true. And and the way he ran through that didn't leave much room for any kind of nuanced, progressive, Mormon way of putting this together. Well, no. If, if you've had a spiritual experience with the Book of Mormon, then the church today is true. It has the priesthood of God. And your job, sort of to paraphrase what Elder Ballard said, his job is to, his assignment is to speak to us, and our assignment is to listen. Um, man, it, it's interesting too. I don't remember if it was this talk by President Monson or if it was the priesthood talk, because it's going to play into when Elder Uchtdorf gets up and speaks. 
But in one of those two talks, President Monson made the statement that we live in a wicked, evil world. And what are we going to do um, as, as essentially representatives of Christ in the gospel? What are we going to do with a world that's this way? And, and I, again, I don't remember which one of the two talks it was in, but it does lead into when, when President Uchtdorf gets up and, and says something that at least on the surface seems paradoxical. Yes, it is this talk. The Sunday morning session, President Monson leads off. He makes the comment that you, you're referring to, which is, quote, We live in a time of great trouble and wickedness. What will protect us from the sin and evil so prevalent in the world today? What he says here, though, in his talk is he wants us all to read the Book of Mormon every day. Right, and I'm torn there. Like, I, I, I still love and adore the Book of Mormon. I... Of the things that I've held on to, um, the Book of Mormon is one of those things I, I'm still clinging to. And, and, and if, if for whatever reason at some moment in the, in, in the future tense, I'm, I'm no longer Mormon for whatever reason that would be, that the Book of Mormon would go with me. Um, you talked, you talked, so you talked, uh, before about Joy Jones and, and she does more of the same of, of this, this idea of, a a sin resistant generation and and she kind of leads off her talk making mention very much of an us versus them kind of way of doing things and and I just want to read a part of this uh, she quotes Elder McConkie, which you mentioned yesterday. As members of the church, we're engaged in a mighty conflict. We are at war. Now, to be at war, not only are you at war against Lucifer, but you have to be at war with the people that Lucifer is is uh, manipulating, right? You just can't be in at war with Lucifer. He has to be doing something, and he generally does something by causing other people to make bad choices, to have hard feelings. Um, he, she says the, and I think maybe she's still quoting McConkie, the great war that rages on every side, which unfortunately is resulting in many casualties. Some fatal is no new thing. Now there neither are nor can be any neutrals in this war. Um, she says today the war continues with increased intensity. The battle touches us all and our children are on the front lines facing the opposing forces. Thus the need intensifies for us to strengthen our spiritual strategies. And you talked about, again, that she emphasizes over and over being a sin-resistant people. Um, my worry is, and I don't know how to really word this, that's why I'm stammering with the word um so many times, but for folks who are in a lower stage of development, and that sounds offensive, but I, I hope I can run with this. People have, in those stages, they have a, a very ethnocentric, they overemphasize an ethnocentric view, meaning that I'm part of a tribe, my tribe is better than everybody else's tribe, and my tribe, I'm going to do all I can to to put boundaries around my tribe to protect them, I'm going to do all I can to help convert other people to my tribe, and I'm going to do all I can to make sure I protect my tribe against anybody else who's out there. And when I get into this conference specifically, especially this session, it felt like every speaker was coming from the position of an us versus them mentality. And, and what happens when people get in, and again, I'm probably losing half the audience. When people get into a later stage of development, they let go of, of a majority of that ethnocentric view. Not that they let it go completely, 
but they let it go to a, a, a large extent. And they moved to what's called a world-centric view. And in a world-centric view, they care, you care, we care about people, whether in our tribe or out of our tribe. It's simply humanity. And we'll do all we can to to relieve the suffering of humanity, regardless of what tribe they're in. And again, this will play into when we get to the last talk. Uh, but I just wanted to just say, maybe, and I certainly want to hear your your thoughts too, um, but this talk and, and, and many of the others in this session, it felt like we were drawing lines and, and saying like, this is who we are and that's who they are. And we're at battle with them because, because it's us versus them and we're the right tribe and they're the wrong tribe. And we have to do all we can to protect those boundaries. Well, we have to protect the boundaries. We cannot really even have any contact with the others because if we do then we get stained and so she talks about having a stain resistant generation now you know as well as I do that for years and years and years uh, more than I've been a member of the church probably more than I've been alive the church has a script and the script is that we are in the last days and things are bad things are bad all over and things are going to get increasingly worse year by year, decade by decade, until Jesus comes again. So that's the script. That's what we learn from the scriptures. It's what we learn in our lessons. And therefore, the talks mirror that script. It doesn't make any difference what's going on in the world around us. It doesn't make any difference what reality may be, especially if we're lucky enough to live in the United States or other first world countries. But that is the script, and therefore it gets repeated over and over and over again. And that's what Sister Jones is doing. And that's why she says, listen to the words of Elder Bruce R. McConkie nearly 43 years ago. And then she quotes exactly what you quoted, how awful things are. We're at war. There can't be any neutrals in this war. And that was 43 years ago. So now it's 43 years worse than it was then. And, of course, that's why that's why what um, Elder Uchtdorf ends up saying is so remarkable by contrast, because what he says it ends up being in touch with reality and totally out of touch with the script. Right. In fact, things are so bad at the end, she says, brothers and sisters, hold your little ones close as if as if like there's danger on every side. And And you're right. There's this idea that the world is so rough and it is just it's just part of our story. And I find that we as Latter-day Saints, we like to tell our story whether it holds up or not. And, and the reality is if we, if we do a simple Google search about whether the world's getting better or worse, like yes, there's still evil in the world. Yes, there's still places on this globe where genocide happened, but it's, but it's less so than it was a hundred years ago and less so than it was 200 years ago and exponentially less so than it was a thousand years ago. And when you look at literacy rates and uh, health and health care, when you look at education, when you look at poverty, when you look at um, – I'm trying to think. There's a, there's a dozen of these kind of indicators. Every study that's done that comes out says as a world, as a – as a globe of people, as, as you know, whatever it is now, seven billion, eight billion people, 
whatever that number is, the, the planet is, is getting better in how healthy, educated, and also in how we treat each other. And, and I just don't think it's fair, like, to look back at, like, the 1940s when racism and bigotry and people with white hoods killing other people and that being looked that that the 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 police and those who were in charge of putting a stop to such things turned a blind eye to such things and you fast forward today and we've gotten rid of some of that and yet to say like it was a better place back then i just think that's silly like if we just look at the planet we are treating each other better today than we used to is there still problems absolutely but we have overcome a lot of things and i i really have a lot of faith that this planet will continue to get better in the way that we treat each other and that at some point we can put a stop to some of this mass violence that happens in other places well you're right and this is the power of scripts whether they're religious scripts or political scripts but the power of the script is this is the script this is the way i know things are and it doesn't make any difference what the reality is. The script controls. And so when at the end of the, the session, President Uthdorf gets up and says, hey, this script is a piece of crap. Look around you. It's great. All of a sudden, he stands out like a sore thumb. And maybe there are some people who look around with him and say, you're right. This script does not reflect reality. How many, how many general conference talks can you remember where the speaker got up and said the world is a better place today than it was yesterday? This would be the only one. Right. This is the first time a general authority, when we get to it here with Uchtdorf, this is the first time a general authority makes notice that the world, the world is not as bad as everybody's painting it and that this is a grand time to live in. Um, your thought before we get to him, is there anybody else in this session you want to take some time and kind of say, like, this is what they talked about and there's something unique going on here? There is, but it'll be just a little bit detailed and maybe so that we don't lose the train of thought that we've been talking about. If you wanted to go ahead and quote from Elder Uchtdorf, I think that would be wonderful. Okay, let's do that. Because uh, I know we were hitting the two themes kind of at the end, and, and I think the talk you're speaking of will play into that. The uh, Elder Uchtdorf gives this talk called Perfect Love casteth out fear. Their purpose and pattern seem to be to frighten people into church. Historically, fear has often been used as a means to get people to take action. Parents have used it with their children, employee, employers with employees, and politicians with uh, voters. Experts in marketing understand the power of fear and often employ it. We sometimes use similar methods to get others to do what we want. My message has two purposes today. The first is to urge us to contemplate and consider the extent to which we use fear to motivate others, including ourselves, the second is to suggest a better way. It is true that fear can have a powerful influence over our actions and behavior, but that influence tends to be temporary and shallow. 
Fear rarely has the power to change our hearts. And it will never transform us into people who love what is right and who want to obey Heavenly Father. People who are fearful may say and do things that are right, but they do not feel the right things. They often feel helpless and resentful, even angry. Over time, these feelings lead to mistrust, defiance, even rebellion. Unfortunately, this misguided approach to life and leadership is not limited to the secular world. It grieves me to hear of church members who exercise unrighteous dominion, whether in their homes, church callings, at work, or in their daily interactions with others. One of the ways Satan wants us to manipulate others is by dwelling upon and even exaggerating the evil in the world. Certainly, our world has always been and will continue to be imperfect. For too many innocent people suffer because of circumstances of nature as well as from man's inhumanity. The corruption and wickedness in our day are unique and alarming. But in spite of all this, I wouldn't trade living in this time with any other time in the history of the world. We are blessed beyond measure to live in a day of unparalleled prosperity, enlightenment, and advantage. Most of all, we are blessed to have the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which gives us a unique perspective on the world's dangers and show us how to either avoid these dangers or deal with them. When I think of these blessings, I want to fall to my knees and offer praises to our Heavenly Father for his never-ending love for all of his children. I don't believe God wants his children to be fearful or dwell on the evils of the world. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He has given us an abundance of reasons to rejoice. We just need to find and recognize them. The Lord often reminds us to be not afraid, to be of good cheer, and to fear not, little flock. I testify with the Apostle John, there is no fear in Christ's love. But he talks about fear being used to manipulate and motivate, and even says, and says it even happens in the church. So Elder Uchtdorf here gives this talk, and, and he hits on really several just what I think is groundbreaking and just dynamically interesting and progressive. Uh, about halfway down the talk, and, and really the whole talk is worth reading, he sets up the conversation really well. But But he says here, he says, unfortunately, this misguided approach to life in leadership, and he's talking about fear. He's talking about the idea behind advertising and politics and other places in the world 
where we use fear to get people to do what we want them to do. He says, unfortunately, this misguided approach to life and leadership is not limited to the secular world. It grieves me to hear of church members who exercise unrighteous dominion, whether in their homes, in their church callings, at work, or in their daily interactions with others. Often people may condemn bullying in others, yet they cannot see it in themselves. I think that's a beautiful one. I, I know just me personally, like I was pricked in my heart for some of the things I do in my own life that, that I see that, that happening and that surfacing. Um, he says they demand compliance with their own arbitrary rules, but when others don't follow these random rules, they chasten them verbally, emotionally, and sometimes physically. The Lord has said that when we exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, the heavens withdraw themselves and the spirit of the law or the Lord is grieved. Just a beautiful, beautiful quote. Um, so, and then towards the end, again, he's hitting on this idea of the world and how, how bad so many people paint it. Uh, he says, one of the ways Satan wants us to manipulate others is by dwelling upon and even exaggerating the evil in the world. Certainly our world has always been and will continue to be imperfect. Far too many innocent people suffer because of circumstances of nature as well as from man's inhumanity. The corruption and wickedness in our day are you, in our day are unique and alarming. But in spite of all this, I wouldn't trade living in this time with any other time in the history of the world. We are blessed beyond measure to live in a day of unparalleled prosperity, enlightenment, and advantage. Again, you hit it right in the head that this is the first time somebody's ever saying this. Most of all, he says, this is him continuing, most of all, we are blessed to have the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which gives us a unique perspective on the world's dangers and shows us how to either avoid these dangers or deal with them. When I think of these blessings, I want to fall to my knees and offer praises to our heavenly father for his never ending love for all of his children. When he says, when he says, I get on my knees and want to, want to, when he thinks of these blessings, I think he's referring to his entire list. I think he's referring to the prosperity, enlightenment and advantage uh, in, in this world at this time that is greater than ever before. And, and he finishes off. He says, I don't believe God wants his children to be fearful or dwell on the evils of the world, which, which as you point out, church leaders and speakers at conference are doing all the time. He, he says there, he uses a scripture at the end for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And, and he finishes off with fear, not little flock. I, I just love this talk because he takes what everybody else is doing throughout this conference. And he says, like, I know the, and I know he's not saying this, but I'm paraphrasing. I know the rest of these guys and I know the rest of the folks who spoke six months ago and the rest of the folks who spoke for the last 200 years have been telling you how bad this world has gotten and how much worse it is today than yesterday. But don't believe it. Fear not, little flock. Things are much better today, and I'm grateful to be on the earth at this time. Yeah, what President Uthdorf did took a lot of courage because not only does he know what's been taught in every general conference since I've been alive, but he also knows what everybody else is going to say in general conference, this general conference. I mean, uh, we sometimes have this idea that 
everybody creates their own talk in a vacuum. Nobody knows what anybody else is saying. But I have noticed from time to time, including in this general conference, where people, when they're quoting each other, you know, the general authorities quote each other all the time, not only are they quoting general authorities from past conferences, but we've got times when they quote general authorities from this conference. So they already know exactly what it is that they're going to say. They have access to it. It's in the can. The words are there. They have to be in order to go up on the teleprompter. President Uchtdorf knows what everybody's going to say. He knew what President Monson was going to say at the beginning of the conference. And I think that's one of the reasons why, even though he says it very strongly, and it's um, this message that we haven't heard before, at least I haven't heard before in general conference, you'll see him go back and forth and say, things are great today. Well, certainly it's wicked, but really it's great. Hey, I understand the, the wickedness is unique, but I would rather live now than at any other time. He goes back and forth on that, but I want to give him credit because a counselor in the first presidency appears to be saying the exact opposite of what the president of the church just said at the beginning of this session of conference. If we compare the two statements, President Monson said, quote, The importance of having a firm and sure testimony of the Book of Mormon cannot be overstated. We live in a time of great trouble and wickedness. What will protect us from the sin and evil so prevalent in the world today? I maintain that a strong testimony of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and of his gospel will help us through to safety. Well, the answer is apparently President Uchtdorf. That's what's going to protect us because he comes in and says, one of the ways Satan wants us to manipulate others is by dwelling upon and even exaggerating the evil in the world. So that sounds like quite a contradiction, or at least a contrast in opinions. And once again, I want to give credit to President Uchtdorf. He took, that took a great deal of courage for him. He has balls of German steel. And it's as if he was turning around to face the other GAs and flipping them the bird with both hands. Right. You could almost picture him dropping the mic, huh? Um, it, That's a mic drop. <laughs> right. And and the trouble is I posted these two quotes on Facebook, and and I wasn't trying to like necessarily instigate anything. I just wanted them juxtaposed against each other, and I wanted to get people's thoughts on if, if what they thought of this kind of paradox. And some people jumped in and said there's no contradiction here, that that this is a time of great trouble and wickedness, that this is – that, that Elder Uchtdorf is saying like, yes, there's so many great things now. And Elder, and President Monson is saying, yes, you know, essentially I agree with that, but there's also these really bad things too. And I simply want to say like, when I go back to Monson's word, President Monson's words, I see we live in a time of great trouble and wickedness. Now, when you say great trouble and wickedness, you're implying that it is more significant than at least some other time. And then he says, what will protect us from the sin and evil so prevalent in the world today? Again, that sentence structure implies that it is worse today than at least a significant amount of the time in the past. When I just, I guess I'm, I'm trying to hit on it, this idea that I do see a contradiction there. And hopefully I'm not in trouble for just saying like I see a contradiction, but you have the president of the church saying that this time right now, evil is very prevalent. 
sin and evil are prevalent and there is great trouble and wickedness. And like you said, President Uchtdorf jumps in and says that, yes, the, the wickedness, the evil is unique at this very time, but that this is a time of great Great things going on in terms of the things we talked about, um, prosperity and education and healthcare and, and just the good that people do to each other. The atrocities that happened in centuries past, I mean, even just churches, you know, the Catholic church would slice your head off if you, if you wanted to even just read the scriptures in, in some other language besides the Latin. It's crazy. To look around today, and it happens, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Radio Free that when you're in Sunday school or you're in priesthood, you see these, these old high priests stand up and raise their hand and say, oh, the world's a wicked place. Like, I think we're just tired of hearing that. The world is getting better and the younger generation sees it in this idea of putting forth the concept that the world is just becoming more wicked. I just don't think it's going to hold water much longer. Well, I, agree with you. And of course, once again, it's the script and the script controls for certain people, regardless of what the reality is. And then when President, I, excuse me, President Buchdorf says, no, the script is wrong. The reality is the reality. All of a sudden he gains a lot of credibility in the eyes of people who are not bound and determined to follow the script. What we find out is that you said you've got like 10 categories of things, uh, different indicators about how things are so much better now than they were ever before. Well, when people talk about how horrible things are today and they're in the church, typically what they're talking about is things are worse now than they've ever been in the history of mankind because gay people can get married in the United States. You hit it on the head, like this idea that two people who love each other and whose relationship has zero effect on you and your family somehow makes the world an awful place. Meanwhile, in centuries past, everyone was at war protecting their tribe against the other tribe and killing each other. No, this is worse than the Black Plague, the Crusades, and the Salem Witch Trials all put together, the fact that gay people can get married together. Right. It just seems crazy. Um, but it's the power of the script. Right. The script controls the interpretation of facts. Yeah, I, I sure hope this talk. I've got, I've got one, uh, teacher. Uh, he teaches priesthood that likes to kind of be a little, a little out there and, and pulling things to get people talking and discussing and getting people to, to kind of hash out different views. I'm probably going to send him an email this week and say, when you teach this month, like, is there any way we could use Uchtdorf's talk and, and juxtapose his idea of where the world's at versus where leaders have told us for 200 years that we're at? Uh, I, I think that would be interesting. It, it is kind of neat jumping into the Sunday afternoon session. The very first talk is titled The Voice of Warning. So you kind of feel like, uh-oh, here we go again. We're going to be told how awful the world is. But – and, and I, there are things with Elder Christofferson's talk that, um, that butted heads a little bit with, with my gut. But there's also a few things he said that I thought were beautiful. And, and I want to hit on those and then I want to get your thoughts on that and, and then let you kind of share maybe some other speakers and talks that were given in this session. But 
There's two paragraphs a little bit past the middle of his talk where he says, Sometimes those who raise a warning voice are dismissed as judgmental. Paradoxically, however, those who claim truth is relative and moral standards are a matter of personal preference are often the same ones who most harshly criticize people that don't accept the current norm of correct thinking. One writer referred to this as the shame culture, quoting, In a guilt culture, you know you are good or bad by what your conscience feels. In a shame culture, you know you're good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honors or excludes you. In the shame culture, moral life is not built on the continuum of right and wrong. It's built on the continuum of exclusion and inclusion. Everybody is perpetually insecure in a moral system based on inclusion and exclusion. There are no permanent standards, just the shifting judgment of the crowd. It's a culture of oversensitivity, overreaction, and frequent moral panics during which everybody feels compelled to go along. The guilt culture could be harsh, but at least you could hate the sin and still love the sinner. The modern shame culture allegedly values inclusion and tolerance, but it can be strangely unmerciful to those who disagree and those who don't fit in." Contrasted to this is the rock of our Redeemer, a stable and permanent foundation of justice and virtue. How much better it is to have the unchanging law of God by which we may act to choose our destiny rather than being hostage to the unpredictable rules and wrath of the social media mob. How much better it is to know the truth than to be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. How much better to repent and rise to the gospel standard than to pretend there is no right or wrong and languish in sin and regret. Um, sometimes those who raise a warning voice are dismissed as judgmental. And I want to stop there and just say, like, the way he words his talk, it, it seems like he's imposing that the folks he's talking about are the, the TBM members of the church who are raising a voice of warning to the world. But I also at least want to say, like, that could be taken the other way, that the individuals in the church who are on the margins – who raise their hand and say, there's something unhealthy here. There's something wrong here. Can we be better? Can we do something better? That, that those folks might also be being dismissed as judgmental. Um, he continues, he says, paradoxically, however, those who claim truth is relative and moral standards are a matter of personal preference are often the same ones who most harshly criticize people who don't accept the current norm of correct thinking. One writer referred to this as the shame culture. And, and I want to agree with him here. Like, like I know this probably made every progressive Mormon like go, ah, when they, when they heard this quote. But I want to recognize that for many of us who, who want those who disagree with us to open their minds up and to have the discussion that goes both ways, that we need to be able to return that favor also. And so I do think that there is some of this that goes on. At the same time, I also want to acknowledge that there are people among progressive Mormons 
who simply want to have an engaging conversation where both sides let their walls down a little bit and be open to hearing and validating and empathizing with where the other person stands and without without having to feel like you have to protect your own beliefs. And I think that there's a lot of people on the progressive side that feel like if that could just happen, like we could respect somebody for disagreeing if they at least could hear us out and understand where we're coming from. And then, and then he continues, he says, in a guilt culture, you know you are a good, you know you are good or bad by what your conscience feels. In a shame culture, you know you are good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honors or excludes you. And then he says, moral life is not built on the continuum of right and wrong. It is built on the continuum of inclusion and exclusion. I think that's a gorgeous paragraph right in the middle of this thing. And and he goes on and says, the guilt culture could be harsh, but at least you could hate the sin and still love the sinner. The modern shame culture allegedly values inclusion and tolerance but it can be strangely unmerciful to those who disagree and to those who don't fit in. And there he kind of hits those on both sides. I just thought he did a really nice job of working this in in a way that no matter where you're at on the spectrum, you feel pricked in your heart to do better, and you also feel like he's speaking to you where you're at at the same time. Well, I hope so, because when you said those words, it occurred to me that I'm not sure who that condemns more, people in the church or people outside the church. Right, but when he says, by what your community says about you, like that tends to, when I hear that phrase, I tend to think of the person on the margins of the church and what the rest of the church does in terms of including them or excluding them. To me, that sentence, again, I know there's other sentences here where he's also pointing at the progressive or the ex-Mormon and he's, and he's saying something about what they need to change. But on that, that one phrase, it felt like he was talking to those who, who hold certainty and sit in the middle of the sandbox telling other people on the edges of the sandbox that they can't play anymore. Interesting. And, and I get it. Like I'm, I'm open and I think I mentioned it earlier. I'm open to some of these sentences could be taken either way. Yes. And I will tell you, frankly, I hope you're right, but I tend to think that Elder Christopherson and some others mean them one way, which is pro church and anti those who are outside the church and possibly have no recognition of the fact that this is a sword that cuts both ways. But I do hope you're right that they do have that recognition and that is the message that they're trying to get across. Don't don't you think that's when, and again, I'm not saying this talk necessarily walks that balance perfectly, but don't you think that general conference, when a speaker gives a talk and, and the speaker walks this line where everybody in the audience feels pricked to do something better, and everybody in the audience at the same time feels like he's reaching out to me and telling me I'm loved and telling me I'm welcome here. Like when, when those kinds of talks happen, to me, that's like, that's like church at its best. Well, I like your insights into what Elder Christofferson had to say. 
Um, I will tell you that out of my 30-plus pages of notes on his talk, I thought, this is just my perception. You're seeing more in it than I am. But I had one sentence. And my one sentence on Elder Christofferson's talk was, basically a talk on how members should promote and defend the church's position on things, even though they are not popular. Hmm. And I, and I want to grant to you, like, that's the case. Elder Christofferson has made it clear that while privately he has spoken to individuals who have concerns, for instance, over the LGBT policy, and privately he's reached out to them in compassion, in love, uh, pleaded with them to be patient as the church works this out. Publicly, he has always um, been loyal to the church and to the other church leaders. And and so I don't expect Elder Christofferson to uh, butt heads here with the church on its policies or its doctrines or with the other church leaders on those same things. But what I'm saying is that I, I think... Within a talk of him saying the quote you just said, within that kind of a framing, I also think there's times where he and others are throwing a bone to those on the margins as well. Yes, and once again, I think that you have seen things in this talk that I have not, and I think that's a good thing. Okay, I hope so. Um, <laughs> was there any other talk here that you think is important that we kind of talk about in this Sunday afternoon session? What else caught yes, your eye? Absolutely. L. Whitney Clayton, Doc Ock to John DeLynn's Spider-Man. But he gets up there and he gives a talk. And Let me just give you the background, okay, because what he's going to talk about is a certain issue. But once again, he doesn't talk about what the issue is before he really gives his talk. He gives the talk so that those who know what the issue is will know, and everybody else will be out there kind of scratching their heads and thinking this is another boring general conference talk. Here's the issue. I know people who are young people, who are college graduates, who are the best and the brightest in this church, who are leaving the church because they do not believe that the prophet is a prophet. They do not believe that the apostles are prophets, seers, and revelators. They see no evidence of any prophecy. They see no evidence of any seeing. They see no evidence of any revelation. And yet, they are told over and over and over again in general conference that they need to follow the prophet, follow the prophet, follow the prophet. And so, they go to... There's, this is an actual story here. I'm just not at liberty to tell the name. So, they go to the state president, and they tell the state president, actually write a multiple-page letter to the state president, laying out their issues and why it is they have a problem with this. They have genuine questions about the church. They have genuine questions about the history. And they go to their state president or other local leader, and they ask these questions. And the response is, well, we don't know the answer to your questions. But that's not important. You don't need to have your answers Excuse me, you don't need to have your questions answered. What you need to do is you need to read the Book of Mormon every day. And you need to read General Conference every day. And you need to not read any of these other books that are causing these questions to arise in your minds. But you focus on all this stuff, and that will take care of your problem, and it will answer your questions. 
Now, in the real world, that makes absolutely no sense. That's a non sequitur. And with the people that I know, and I only know a limited group, though I expect it represents a much larger group, people are getting fed up with this kind of paternalistic attitude that they've got legitimate questions. They go to their leaders, which are the only ones they can go to because they can't go above their state president. Because if they try, all the questions get funneled back to the state president by the higher authorities. Just like when the voting happened and anybody who voted no, talk to your state president, because we're not going to get involved in that. It's just going to be your local leaders. And so in the context of all of this, L. Whitney Clayton gives his talk, and I just want to quote two paragraphs. A few years ago, I spoke with a young bishop who was spending hours each week counseling with members of his ward. He made a striking observation. The problems that members of his ward faced, he said, were those faced by church members everywhere. Issues such as how to establish a happy marriage, struggles with balancing work, family, and church duties, challenges with the word of wisdom, employment, or pornography, or gaining peace about a church policy or historical question they didn't understand. His counsel to ward members very often included getting back to simple practices of faith, such as studying the Book of Mormon, as we were counseled by President Monson to do, paying tithing, and serving in the church with devotion. Frequently, however, their response to him was one of skepticism. I don't agree with you, Bishop. We all know those are good things to do. We talk about those things all the time in the church. But I'm not sure you're understanding me. What does doing any of those things have to do with the issues I'm facing? A few years ago, I spoke with a young bishop who was spending hours each week counseling with members of his ward. He made a striking observation. The problems that members of his ward faced, he said, were those faced by church members everywhere, issues such as how to establish a happy marriage. So, in other words, you got marriage problems. Struggles with balancing work, family, and church duties. Challenges with the word of wisdom, with employment, or with pornography, or, and get this one, or trouble gaining peace about a church policy. What policy could that be, Bill? Or gaining peace. Yes, or trouble gaining peace about a church policy or historical question. They didn't understand. He puts that in at the end. And so this bishop is spending hours each week counseling people with these issues. Now he goes on. His counsel toward members very often included getting back to simple practices of faith, such as studying the Book of Mormon, paying tithing. Wouldn't want to forget that, because paying tithing is, of course, going to help you if you're having struggles with your marriage. And it's going to help you if you're having trouble understanding why the church would punish the children of gay people by withholding ordinances of salvation from them for something that they have no responsibility for. Paying tithing will do that, you understand, Bill. So will studying the Book of Mormon. But studying the Book of Mormon, paying tithing, and serving in the church with devotion. Frequently, however, this is still in the talk, so this is why I gave you all that background first, because it's exactly what he's talking about. Frequently, however, their response to him, the bishop, was one of skepticism. Now, why would anybody be skeptical about this kind of advice when you come to them and say, I'm having trouble with this policy, I've got questions about Joseph Smith and 
polygamy and 14-year-olds and polyandry and other men's wives, and you're telling me to read the Book of Mormon every day. Why would they be skeptical? But he says, frequently, these members would come to him with a response, one of skepticism, and this is what they would say, paraphrased by him, but this is the quote from the book. I don't agree with you, Bishop. We all know those are good things to do. We talk about those things all the time in the church, but I'm not sure you're understanding me. What does doing any of those things have to do with the issues I am facing? So that's the end of the quote right there. That is the most logical, natural, common-sense question anybody could ask a bishop who's telling people to read the Book of Mormon every day, pay their tithing, be faithful in their church calling, when their marriage is falling apart, or more specifically to what we're talking about, when they're having a problem with the November 2015 policy, questioning the inspiration of that, questioning the inspiration of their leaders of their church, or whether they have a historical question, perhaps about polygamy and Joseph Smith. So that is a natural thing for them to have that question, and he sets this up, and then um, I'm not going to quote any more from the talk at this point, but L. Whitney Clayton says, yeah, this doesn't seem to make any sense, but really it does, because there really is a connection. And so he advocates for this. And what he's doing in his conference talk is giving the message to the local leaders, this is the way you should approach it. This is the answer you should give. The answer you should give to people is a non-answer. It's simply, if you come to me with a question, no matter what that question is, the answer is read the Book of Mormon every day. By the way, that's what President Monson said, too, if you recall. Read the Book of Mormon every day. It's a talismanic kind of ritualistic activity that will keep the devil at bay. And everything in your life will go well. And all these questions that you have will simply vanish off into nothing, although they were never answered. Sorry, I think I'm at the end of my diatribe. You can go ahead and make a comment. Sorry about that. No, no, no. I, I, that's good. And as you were saying that, it, it reminded me of a quote from Elder Ballard, which is, I'll just, again, I, I'll use this word again. I'm going to juxtapose it against, against the quote from Elder Clayton. I, I think you're right. Part of it feels like the horse or the tail wagging the dog in terms of if we could give people satisfactory answers and it, to some degree, like if I pick the hundred most problematic questions I can ask about the church, like the church, I don't think has an answer to any of them. And, and so the only answer it has is to say, go back and do these things. But it misses, it misses a problem here, which is number one, people who are going through a faith crisis want the church to be true and they're reading scriptures and they're praying and they're fasting and they're seeking God sincerely, probably more and stronger than they ever have in their entire lives. Like they're going out of their way to try and solve this issue. They want nothing else but for this all to go back together. They for, for this all to get peace back together so that they can move on with the church being true. And, and it feels like if we could give these folks a satisfactory answer, cause I, I agree with I agree with church leadership that these folks at some point throw in the towel and some of them stop reading scriptures, they stop praying, and they stop asking God to, to fix this because nobody's helping them, nobody's giving them answers, nobody's sitting down and trying to understand where they come from. So yes, 
if if the church could give satisfactory answers, these folks would go back to doing those things and go back to believing the church is true. The trouble is we don't have good answers. And Elder Ballard speaks what I think is very much a, a, a paradoxical statement in comparison with Elder Clayton when he says, quote, we have heard stories where someone asking honest questions about our history, doctrine, or practice were treated as though they were faithless. This is not the Lord's way. As Peter said, be ready always to give an answer to every man, and then he inserts, or woman, that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. We need to be better, I'm sorry, we need to do better in responding to honest questions. Although we may not be able to answer every question about the cosmos or about our history, practices, or doctrine, we can provide many answers to those who are sincere. Elder Ballard here says, do not accuse someone of being faithless. And when you tell somebody that the only solution to your problem is if you just go back and read more, pray more, and fast more, what you're doing is saying you're faithless. You're not putting in enough work. And the reality is these people are working harder than they ever have. The other thing Elder Ballard does is he says we, as church leaders, as as members of the church who who are not having a faith crisis, we need to stand ready to, and attempt to give answers, and we're not doing a very good job of that right now. And so when Elder Clayton gives this talk, it what it feels like to someone like me and someone who's hurting and someone who's having a faith crisis is that is that I'm not going to give you any answers. You you in a sense almost like you don't deserve me giving you any answers. What you need to do is go back and pray more, read more and fast more. And and I think that's the whole idea of the shame culture we talked about. I think that's the whole idea of blaming the victim. And, and I think we need to do a better job of saying like, yes, this is messy. There are not great answers. And, and to some extent for some of you, no matter how much you read, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you fast, there may not be answers in this lifetime for some of you. And breaking it down to its simplest point on that theme, if you have a problem with the 2015 November policy, the problem is with you. Because you're not reading the scriptures enough, you're not paying enough tithing, and you're not serving in your church calling enough. It's implicit, because the response then is, to fix the problem, you've got to do these things better. The fault is always the members, never the churches. Right, and we've already been told the church does not seek, nor give apologies. And and it seems like in every instance, like there's never been a time where the church... Or, or one of its leaders speaking on its behalf have said like, yeah, not only did we goof up, but here's where we goofed up and we're sorry for that. And, and that, that alone, like, like the church acknowledges, its leaders acknowledge like it's got fallible leadership, that we've made mistakes, that some of which have violated policies or doctrines, but there's never a recognition like in the very moment that someone's hurting that there's even the possibility or potential that, that their feelings and hurt and the pain they feel 
from the church is justified, we can always look back and say like, yeah, that happened a hundred years ago and shame on us for that. We disavow those, those past theories, those racist theories, we disavow them. But it's sad when in the very moment as people are hurting that we can't put our arm around them and say like, yeah, this is, this is, and to some extent, this is partly our fault too. Good point. Good point. He concludes his talk with a class, another classic example of doublespeak. I told you I've never looked at a conference as closely as this one in preparation for this podcast. But the closer I look, the more doublespeak I see, the more other themes I see coming out. And after L. Whitney Clayton, excuse me, L. Whitney Clayton wants to tell everybody that you need to follow, you need to be devoted, you need to pay your tithing, you need to study the Book of Mormon every day. You need to be obedient to everything that the church tells you to do, regardless of your questions, regardless of the issues you have, regardless of the problems you have with church policy. He says that, and he recognizes that what he's saying sounds an awful lot like blind obedience. And I know that he feels that way because this is what he says. He says, God asks us to bear with him. By the way, this is God now, not the church, not the church leaders. It's God. God asks us to bear with him, to trust him, and to follow him. And then I'm going to omit a few sentences to get to the bottom of the paragraph. I am not speaking of blind obedience, but of thoughtful confidence in the perfect love and the perfect timing of the Lord. I see this as classic doublespeak where what he's saying, what I'm hearing him say, let me put it that way, what I'm hearing him say is, I am not speaking of blind obedience, I'm speaking of blind obedience. And and I'll tell you, I think the church parses this out by saying something like, you're welcome to disagree inside your head, you're welcome to think whatever you want inside your head, you just can't say it out loud. And And here's my frustration when when they say you're welcome to think it in your head it's, they they say it like they've given you a wonderful gift in order to deal with this but it's twofold one is that that gift is yours in and out of the church no matter where you live on this earth no matter what your situation is every single human being on this planet has the agency to think whatever they want in their head without another human being doing anything to them based on that that's part one. The other thing is that the reality of when when there's harm being done, when there's an unhealthiness in our community, I I cannot accept that God wants me to be silent. I like I the only God I can have faith in now is a God who who wants me to stand up for those who who the society treats as weaker and less than that God wants me to do what the DNC says, which is to strengthen the feeble knees and lift the hands that hang down. I, I just, I can't picture a God who, when the civil rights movement was going on in the 1940s, fifties, and even sixties, and, and that he would have wanted Dr. Lowry Nelson to be quiet, that he would have wanted uh, those who said like, hey guys, this, I just don't feel good about what we're doing right now. 
I just can't picture a God who says, I want, I want those people to be silent and let us work this out even slower and, and more quietly. Like, I think my God wants us to stand up anytime we see injustice being done and not just that, but injustice that is harming and unhealthy and causes another human being trauma. Like my God expects me to stand up. And so anybody who asked me to sit down, be quiet, think what you want in your head, but be patient and let us work this, let God and us work this out in our own way is pushing an idea of God that I simply can't hold faith in. Well, if a person's God is Jesus Christ, then what he spent his ministry doing was not only taking care of the poor and the outcasts and the marginalized, but speaking truth to the leaders of his own religion. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me of the woman brought to him in adultery. And, and the community perceiving that she had done this great sin and that she was deserving of some great punishment. And yet the Savior standing up for her, after he, after he says wise things and everyone walks away, he, he looks at this, this, this lady and says, where are thine accusers? Right? Like he is our advocate. And, and we teach all the time in the church that we are God's hands, that it's our responsibility to serve each other and to, to stand up for the weak. But the, but the church seems to make an exception that when it's the church who's hurting somebody, then the rules all of a sudden change. And, and I'm simply saying like to the LDS church, you've raised me better than that. You've taught me to stand up for the weak regardless of the situation and regardless of whether that puts me in a spot to to be seen as less than and to be shamed and to be ridiculed like you've taught me to stand up for people when i see someone being hurt and and you can't simply say now that we're the ones doing it you have to just be quiet about it and although those words are not contained in the new testament i can fully envision jesus saying exactly those sentiments to the pharisees who were the leaders almost certainly of his religious branch of judaism Mm-mm-mm. Yes. And, and again, I know, man, I know like if the, the strengthening church members committee is listening to your and my conversation here, they're going to see lots of tidbits for, for, you know, finding cause for me being overly critical. But I, I simply say like, I'm, I'm, I'm asking the LDS church, like, give me a better way. Help me to know what is an effective way to stand up for the weak and the powerless and for those to whom harm is happening in which I can be a voice to help that change. And you give me a better way to do it and I will take it in a heartbeat. Um, I, I want to at least, I mean, I guess I want to follow up with you. Is there anything else here in this talk that, that you see again, I should say this talk, but in the other talks here of this session? Yes. Um, this will fit into a theme, but it's going to take just a little bit of explanation. It has to do with a talk in which a miracle story is told about Japan and about the tsunami that happened there in Japan back on March 11th of 2011. This was told by Gary E. Stevenson in his talk. Do you remember that one? I do remember this talk. Well, this is a rather long and extended quote from him telling the story, and I think that... I learned again of the important warning role of the Holy Ghost while I served in the area presidency in Japan. 
During this time, I worked closely with President Reed Tateoka of the Japan Sendai Mission. As part of his usual mission routine, President Tateoka planned a missionary meeting for leaders in the southern portion of his mission. A few days prior to the meeting, President Tateoka had an impression, a feeling in his heart to invite all missionaries of that zone to the leadership meeting instead of the prescribed small number of elders and sisters. When he announced his intention, he was reminded that this meeting was not designed for all missionaries, but only for mission leaders. However, setting convention aside in order to to follow the prompting he had received, he invited all missionaries serving in several coastal cities, including the city of Fukushima, to the meeting. On the appointed day, March 11, 2011, the missionaries gathered together for the expanded mission meeting in an inland city. During this meeting, a 9.0 magnitude earthquake and tsunami struck the region of Japan where the Japan Sendai Mission is located. Tragically, many coastal cities, including those from which the missionaries had been gathered, were devastated and suffered a great loss of life. And the city of Fukushima suffered a subsequent nuclear event. Although the meeting house where the missionaries were meeting that day was was damaged by the earthquake, through following the promptings of the Holy Ghost, President and Sister Tateoka and all missionaries were safely assembled. They were out of harm's way and miles from the devastation of the tsunami and the nuclear fallout. As you heed promptings from the Holy Ghost, impressions most often quiet and still, you may be removed without ever knowing from spiritual and temporal danger. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Ghost will help you by warning you, as he did my father and President Tateoka. Terry Stevenson is in the area presidency in Japan back in 2011. He's working closely with the president of the mission in Sendai. Sendai is an area that's at the northernmost part of the main island of Japan. It is north of Tokyo. So you've got the Sendai mission, then you've got Tokyo, you've got Tokyo north and Tokyo south, but we don't need to go there. Sendai is up there on the north, and of course all of Japan is islands, and this is the main island, so it's got a west coast, it's got a north coast, and it's got an east coast, and that is the main part of the story with the tsunami, because the earthquake, huge earthquake, happens March 11th, 2011, off the coast of Sendai. And so that is the backdrop for this story. And what happens, as Gary Stevenson tells us, is that the mission president, whose name is Tateoka, the mission president for the Sendai Mission, has an inspiration. He's going to be having a zone conference is what it is. And, of course, every mission has multiple zones in it, as you know. And this zone that we're having the zone conference is not throughout the entire mission, but it's in the southernmost part of the mission. So it's in the southern zone. And he feels, apparently that even though typically the people who go to zone conference and are invited to zone conference are the zone leaders, the district leaders, and the trainers, 
he feels impressed to have all the missionaries come to this zone conference. And the zone conference is being held in a town called Cordiana, which is inland. Of course, being inland ends up being important because the coast gets uh, inundated by the tidal waves from the tsunami, which caused so much damage, so much loss of life. Okay, so that's the basic backdrop, and I'm sorry to have to tell you all this, but it's really important to understand the geography in order to understand the story that Gary Stevenson is going to tell, because he's going to tell a story of divine inspiration to the mission president, which ends up saving all the lives of all the missionaries in the entire mission. Now, I want to be clear that he does say and he is clear at the beginning that President Tateoka planned a meeting for missionary leaders in the southern portion of his mission. So he does say that. It is the southern portion of his mission. And then he goes on to say, a few days prior to the meeting, President Tateoka had an impression, a feeling in his heart, to invite all missionaries of that zone, he says, of that zone, to the leadership meeting instead of the prescribed small number of elder and sister leaders. So he goes ahead and he does this, and he, he invites them all in, and here's where it starts getting a little bit iffy as far as the facts go. This is still from the talk. I'm still quoting Gary Stevenson's talk. He invited all missionaries serving in several coastal cities, including the city of Fukushima, to the meeting. Okay, we'll probably come back to that in a, in a minute, but the important thing to note here is I've looked at a, a map of Japan to try and figure out what is the geography that's going on here. And Fukushima is not a coastal city. He tries to cast it as a coastal city for some reason. Let me just tell you what the basic geography is. I learned it by looking at a map. It's not hard to find them on the Internet, a map of Japan and a map of Sendai, even a map of the Sendai mission you can find. And what you have is there is a prefecture in the Sendai mission, and a prefecture is what they would call what we would call a county. And the third largest prefecture or county in Japan is the Fukushima prefecture. Within this prefecture or county, which is very large, is a city that is named Fukushima. So you've got a city Fukushima and a large county or prefecture, Fukushima. So now having said that, if you look at the map, what you will see, because as everybody I think remembers who was paying any attention to the news when this happened, and as Elder Stevenson's going to mention here later, there was a huge problem, not just with the fact that the water comes in and there's all these waves and there's all this damage and there's all this loss of life on the eastern coast of Japan up in the northern part, the northeastern coast, where the Sendai mission is. But also there is a nuclear reactor on the coast that ends up getting swamped with the seawater, and it overloads, and there's all this radioactive spillout. You may recall that. So that reactor is called the Fukushima nuclear reactor. It's on the coast. That's why when the water came in, it ended up causing all those problems with the radioactivity that was emitted. But it's called the Fukushima reactor because it's in the county or district of Fukushima. The city of Fukushima itself 
is not where the reactor is. The city of Fukushima is approximately 20 miles northwest of that reactor. And the city of Fukushima is well inland. Okay, so I'm going through all this stuff just hopefully to give the listeners a verbal picture of what's going on here because things are going to start getting slippery real fast as Elder Stevenson tells the story. And he says he was in the area presidency in Japan at the time, so I would think that he would have a knowledge of the geography. So what he says is that the mission president invited all missionaries serving in several coastal cities, including the city of Fukushima, to the meeting. Now, one would think that if he says language like that, then he's saying the city of Fukushima is one of the coastal cities that was invited to this meeting. Perhaps he meant it differently, but that was the impression I got from it. And then on the appointed day, March 11, 2011, there is a meeting held and there is a 9.0 magnitude earthquake and tsunami that struck the region of Japan where the Japan Sendai Mission is located. I'm quoting from him right now. Then he says, tragically, many coastal cities, including those from which the missionaries had been gathered, were devastated and suffered great loss of life. And then he says, and the city of Fukushima suffered a subsequent nuclear event. So the impression I'm getting when I'm hearing this is, it's a darn good thing that the, the missionaries from Fukushima were called into this mission uh, meeting, this own conference, because the nuclear reactor went nuclear where they would have been otherwise. But here's where he's sort of playing with words, apparently, because the Fukushima nuclear reactor is 20 miles away from the city of Fukushima, where I would presume the Fukushima elders would have been located. He goes on, although the meeting house, and by the way, see if this doesn't sound as if all the missionaries from all the coastal cities had been gathered into the zone conference by inspiration to the mission president in order to keep them safe. Because that's how it sounds like to me. Quoting, although the meeting house where the missionaries were meeting that day was damaged by the earthquake, through following the promptings of the Holy Ghost, President and Sister Takeoka, and all missionaries were safely assembled. They were out of harm's way and miles from the devastation of the tsunami and the nuclear fallout. So am I alone in that? Do I get the impression from that that all the missionaries were safely assembled there at that zone conference? Is that the impression you got, Bill? So, and I'm, and I'm going to parse out some words. I think that's the impression you're giving when you say it that way. Like, like when he says that, that's the impression he's giving. Up, up ahead, it's like four paragraphs higher. He says, a few days prior to the meeting, President Tadioka had an impression, a feeling in his heart, to invite all missionaries of that zone to the leadership meeting instead of the prescribed small number of elder and sister leaders. Now the question becomes like, like where's this zone at and where are the other zones at? And did the tsunami affect the other zones? And if the Holy ghost was, was giving a warning and having this mission president protect his missionaries by calling them in, then would not the other zones that would have been affected should he have also called them? Like it just gets messy, 
and and I'm with you when you jump in four paragraphs lead four four paragraphs later and and he emphasizes the word all again it feels like you're left to think this is everybody I I, I don't know what to make of it and let me go ahead and, and finish out this story because um well, you know and I know what the real story is because actually President Tate Oka, the mission president, posted on the mission webpage back at the end of March of 2011 this massively long and detailed letter to all the, the parents of the missionaries so they would know what the heck's going on. And so from that account, we find out more information about what really happened. And from that, we find out let – me, let me paint this picture just a little bit more – You've got the southernmost zone in the Sendai Mission, and which means that you've got all these zones that go north of it, and the zones north of it also go to the east coast, which is the coast that was hit by the tsunami and the tidal wave, right? Well, what happened to the missionaries who were in the coastal cities north of the southernmost zone? The fact is that according to the mission president himself in a contemporary document, they were not invited anywhere. They were not part of this Southern Zone Conference, which, of course, they would not normally be. But here's what happens according to his letter. In the further, the furthest most north city on the East Coast in the Sendai Mission, Miyako, there were elders who were trapped by rising water in an evacuation shelter, and they were forced to move to the second floor of the building that they were in before they were rescued. By the way, thank goodness, all the missionaries ended up being okay. But they were not okay because the mission president had this inspiration to call them into the zone conference. It was just because things ended up working out uh, pretty good for them. So this Miyako pair of elders were trapped in an evacuation shelter, forced to move the second floor of the building they were in, they ended up getting rescued. Then, a little bit south of that city, still on the East Coast, still people not called in, the Ishinomaki city. There were two sisters there who initially reported in safe because the mission president, in spite of what the story sounds like, he's trying to get a hold of all the missionaries to account for them and see how they are because this is a huge natural disaster. It happened right in his mission. He's trying to find out where everybody is, and it's very difficult to get around. Uh, communication is difficult. Transportation is difficult. He's trying to find out where his missionaries are and if they're okay. So the Ishinomaki sisters, initially they reported safe into him, but then they could not be reached for four days. So there were four days that he didn't know what on earth had happened to the Ishinomaki sisters because they were not called into the Zone Conference. A little bit further south of uh, there, still on the East Coast, is uh, Takajo. It's, uh, elders there were trapped for over 20 hours in a chapel by the tsunami because they weren't called into the zone conference either. But when you get further down now, you're now into Iwaki, which is a coastal town that is actually in this southernmost zone. Apparently, the elders there were invited to the training meeting, and they were at the training meeting when the tsunami hit. So basically, when this ends up being parsed out and compared with the real facts, it appears that Elder Stevenson is omitting information 
framing information using language in such a way as to give an impression of something that happened that was much more miraculous than the actuality was. Right, and and when he says the idea that um, although the meeting house where the missionaries were meeting that day was damaged by the earthquake, through following the promptings of the Holy Ghost, President and Sister Tarioka and all missionaries were safely assembled. They were out of harm's way in miles from the devastation of the tsunami and the nuclear fallout. The reality is that there were also a lot of missionaries under that mission president's care and stewardship who were also still in the devastation of the tsunami, correct? Right, yes, and it was four days before he could locate all the missionaries. Uh, after 24 hours, there was about 72 missionaries in the mission. He knew he could locate 30 out of 72. So, like, I get, so maybe, I mean, maybe they're only speaking about the missionaries in this lower zone, the ones that have been gathered together, but it seems like if if that's only a small segment of the missionaries in your care, and that's not the prime location of the tsunami and that many of the missionaries under your care are in various other places along the coast and they're also in the path of the tsunami, then it certainly takes a lot of the steam out of this as a faith-promoting story. Exactly. Those other missionaries don't fit the script, they don't fit the narrative, and therefore they get omitted from the general conference version of what happened. Mm. Can I mention one other thing? Because I went sure. to all this, I went to all this problem to explain about how Fukushima is a big county, but Fukushima is also a city within the county, and where the uh, the Fukushima nuclear reactor is, like twenty miles away from it on the coast. The reason I went to all that pr- trouble, and I wanted to make sure I tied this off after doing that, is because. It appears, and once again, I haven't lived in that area of Japan. I spent two years down in the Kobe and Osaka area back in 79 to 81 on my mission. But I've looked and studied a map of Japan, and it appears that Elder Stevenson, either ignorantly or intentionally, is playing off the confusion between Fukushima, the county, and Fukushima, the city. And here's what I mean. Um, he says, uh, tragically, oh, excuse me. He says, he, the mission president, invited all missionaries serving in several coastal cities, including the city of Fukushima, to the meeting. Now, that makes sense because he specifically says it's the city of Fukushima, and the city of Fukushima, once again, is about, is well inland and away from any tsunami problems, but it's also 20 miles away from the nuclear reactor, which is on the coast. And it's called the Fukushima Nuclear Reactor because it's in the county or prefecture of Fukushima. But it's very different from the city of Fukushima. So once again, Elder Elder Stevenson says, the mission president invited all missionaries serving in several coastal cities, including the city of Fukushima, to the meeting. And then he talks about this big earthquake happening, and he says, quote, tragically, many coastal cities including those from which the missionaries had been gathered, were devastated and suffered great loss of life. And, here's the point, and the city of Fukushima 
suffered a subsequent nuclear event, period, end of quote. Now, if I'm reading my math correctly, and I'm open to being corrected on this bill, okay, because I would like to be corrected, because this is a real problem, because the city of Fukushima did not suffer a subsequent nuclear event. The city of Fukushima was 20 miles northwest of the Fukushima nuclear reactor, which is on the coast. So it was at the nuclear reactor, the Fukushima nuclear reactor, that suffered the nuclear event. And therefore, I think that this is either a mistake, it could be a mistake on my part, maybe I'm reading the map wrong, but it's, if it's not my mistake, then it's either a mistake on the part of Gary Stevenson, confusing the city of Fukushima with the nuclear reactor that's called the Fukushima nuclear reactor, 20 miles away, or mm, it could be an unfortunate use of language to mislead and make it sound as if the story that he's telling is the mission president through divine intervention, through inspiration, knew to call missionaries from the city of Fukushima to the zone conference, and it was in the city of Fukushima that there was a nuclear event. Those are the words he uses. So, of course, this was inspiration to get those missionaries out of there before there's a nuclear event in their backyard in the same city. That actually the city of Fukushima, no, there was no nuclear event there. It was 20 miles away on the coast. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm looking at a map here, and so you, it looks like you're right that the Fukushima nuclear power plant is, there's this, this other city called Minami Soma, uh, and then there's this Fukushima Dolachi and Fukushima Daini, but yes, Fukushima the city is much further northwest, and the Fukushima airport is much further southwest of the nuclear power plant. Uh, I guess, in, in this instance, I would I would want to maybe just extend more charity, and and recognize that we might just be dealing with a case of the telephone game, and that whoever whoever is in charge of fact checking these talks didn't didn't catch this. I mean, that, I I guess one option would be that I think it's reasonable if you and I don't look at a map, we would assume the Fukushima nuclear power plant is in the city of Fukushima. That makes that makes logical sense or rational sense without having to double check it. Um, I think it's possible that Elder Stevenson is simply speaking of those missionaries in that lower zone being saved out of harm's way from the devastation of the tsunami and the nuclear fallout. It does strike me as kind of odd that you have a lot of missionaries and the majority of them are in the, the devastation, in harm's way of the devastation of the tsunami. And, and yet we tell the story in a way that, that me as a reader, I'm taking away that all the missionaries were rescued, um, because of, of this mission president and his wife and their inspiration. Uh, but I'm with you, like, it's really easy to read this story and to walk away feeling like as, as you learn the facts, that this story was told as a faith promoting story and that whatever data got in the way of it being as faith promoting as it is, those details were left out or, or possibly worded differently. And you can see I'm stammering here. Like I, I want to find room where I'm looking at this talk. I'm looking at the facts. I'm looking at the data and I find a way where this just innocently occurred 
rather than there being anything nefarious or in, intentionally deceiving, I'd much rather figure out like how how the telephone game played out. And, and you get it, right? I mean, you've you've been in, in church uh, venues before where somebody tells a story. And by the fifth time they've told it, and the third time you've passed it on from the fifth time you heard it from him, it becomes it becomes a much more embellished story. Like I just wonder if maybe that's possible if that's the case here. Well, and it may be. And I I try to read things as charitably as I can. Uh, really, I do. Um, the problem that I have, and I still think you can be charitable, but the the obstacle I have in thinking that. Elder Gary Stevenson, who gives this story, is completely unfamiliar with the geography of the Sendai mission, is the way he starts it out, because he starts it out by saying, I learned again of the important warning role of the Holy Ghost while I served in the area presidency in Japan. So I would think that if he's serving in the area presidency in Japan, at the time this occurs, he would have a better understanding of geography than you or I would have of the affected region, where we have to look it up as a map on the internet to see where things are in relation to each other. Right. That the the, the map of this entire country is is pinned with tax to his wall. You would think so. Yeah. Do we know? And again, I'm, I'm this is my effort to extend charity. Do we know how long? He had been serving in the area presidency before this event had taken place? Well, you know, I don't know. But even if he started the day before, he would have served for how many years after? And the geography would probably still stay pretty much the same with Fukushima being 20 miles northwest and inland of the Fukushima nuclear reactor, which is on the coast. And the other thing is that he... He tips his hand. He indicates at the beginning, as far as the other facts go with the, the mission, the zone conference, and the southern part of the mission, he indicates he knows that because those are the details he gives, and then he shifts it, and then he gives a blanket statement at the end that all missionaries were safely assembled. There, There's another detail here. So I'm looking it up, trying to figure out when he was called into the area presidency of Japan. Okay. And on his bio on LDS.org, it says, born on August 6, 1955, to Evan N. and Vera Jean Stevenson, Elder Stevenson grew up in Utah's Cache Valley in a family that came of pioneer stock. While a young man, he accepted a call to serve a mission to Japan. Mm-hmm. That assignment instilled in Elder Stevenson a dual love for Asia and for sharing the gospel that has lasted a lifetime. So, so, you know, to, to at least, Grant you what you're talking about. Elder Stevenson served as a missionary as a young man in Japan, and then also returned as an in the area presidency, which which certainly le- you know lends credence to the idea that that he would know the geography pretty well. Yes, I would think so. And once again, I want to be charitable as much as you do. Well, maybe not as much as you do, but I still want to be charitable. But the other thing is that Elder Stevenson is not just relating the story to a group of friends by a fire off the cuff. He has sat down and worked this out and worked it out and prepared and prepared and then loaded it into the teleprompter machine 
in preparation to read it to the entire membership of the church at General Conference. And I think that when I look at it in that way, it does seem like he's chosen his words very carefully, crafted it very carefully, and the impression that I get from the words he's chosen is very different and much more miraculous than the reality of what appears to have happened. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm continuing to read his bio as you're saying that, uh, Radio Free. I, I, so he, it also says he served in a variety of church callings, including counselor in a stake presidency, bishop, and president of the Japan Nagoya Mission 2004 to 2007. He was called as a general authority 70 in 2008 and served as counselor and president in the Asia North area. So 2008 is the area 70s when he joins that. This, this event doesn't take place until 2011, so three years later. And, and he also served as a mission president in a Japan and served as a missionary in Japan when he was a, uh, a young man. Yes. And so can I just make a couple of points here? Because the two main stories where they go into detail, two different elders, there's Elder Bragg who talks about the, uh, the fake center in Los Angeles catching fire on last year, well, I think it was 2015. And then there's Elder Stevenson who talks about this detailed story. In both those cases, there's enough detail that we can go back and we can check the facts to some degree. And what happens in both of them is that when we check the facts behind them, it appears that what happened in reality was much less miraculous than what is being reported in general conference. Now, here's what I make of that. This church has a script, just like everything's getting worse and worse because it's the last days until Jesus comes. This church has a script that we have miracles that continue to occur in the church today. It's part of the articles on faith. Everybody teaches it. And so many of the speakers in general conference feel an obligation to produce a miracle, a miracle story to share with members of the church. That's why they're coming up with these, I believe. But the fact is, is that, is this really the best that they have? Apparently, because they're sharing it in general conference, if they had something better than this, that could check out better than this and actually see more miraculous in reality than just in the retelling, one would think that those are the stories that they would be sharing, which leads me to the conclusion, this is the best they've got. They have somewhat pedestrian experiences, which sound an awful lot like coincidence, frankly, because, you know, sometimes a coincidence really is a coincidence. It sounds like coincidental stuff or maybe just very pedestrian, ordinary, everyday stuff of firefighters going back into a church after the blaze is out and it's just rubble and there's no more flames or a danger, and they go and they, they take some things out to protect them maybe from water damage because they're being nice guys, that story is not as miraculous. In the same way, this one that we just went into a lot of detail about, about Japan, sounds much more coincidental than miraculous, because if it's really miraculous, why is God just saving the, um, the missionaries on the coast in the southernmost zone in Sendai, instead of, hey, by the way, as long as I've got you on the line, mission president, you might want to get the missionaries from all those other cities that are north of you but still on the East Coast into this own conference. See, when you look at it that way, it sounds a lot more like a coincidence than it does like inspiration. So I'm left to conclude, as I say, this is the best they've got, but they have to be embellished, they have to be changed, 
They have to be told in a certain way in order for them to be miraculous enough for prime time in general conference. So that's my first comment. I'll say the second comment until I hear your response to that. So I'm looking at Elder Bragg's talk, and I'm looking at the pictures. I mean, the the fire trucks parked next to the building. The firefighters seem to be walking, and and the look on their face is if they're walking just you know just casually. Yeah, they're like ten foot away from the building, and they're just walking casually away, holding the pictures. And there's not one sign of smoke or flames in any of those pictures, is there? No, it it appears if we're just gonna go off the data in front of us, it appears that the fire was extinguished long before this this scene. Um, it's still, even even if the story didn't happen the way they said, I'm still kind of bothered by these guys going back into the building and, and bringing out the art. I don't know what protocol is or what the policies and procedures are. It just seems odd to me that firefighters who promise and pledge to sacrifice their lives if they need to, to save uh, another human being or maybe even an animal, that I, I, I struggle to see how the, the fire company's insurance, how the protocols written that these guys pledged to upkeep would allow them to go back in to save uh, a relatively inexpensive artifact uh, it, it, it doesn't seem like that would be the standard, but I'm looking at the pictures. It does seem odd. I, I guess I struggle because in the church, we, we talk about how experiences are so sacred. We, we're not going to share them. We talk about how experiences that of miracles are to be kept to oneself. But as you say, it, it seems like at times we're quick to take a story make it a little more faith-promoting, and then throw it out to the crowd in a way to build faith, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of telling the story is to show that miracles occur and to and to be faith-promoting. And yet, when you look at the two stories that were shared in conference, at least on the surface, and I'm again, I'm, I'll emphasize what you did, is that I would love to hear more about these two events and 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 why the data seems to indicate one thing while the actual story told seems to indicate another, I'd be I'd love to hear more about that and, and be made aware of how all these pieces fit. But it seems like the only two stories we've got in order to show the miraculous, maybe when told in their full detail, are not quite as miraculous as shared in conference. And 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 again, I don't want to like put these two speakers in any kind of you know lump them in in with the group that I'm about to talk about, but one of the things I, I really worry about is how in the 19, I think it was the seventies, right? With, um, Paul H. Dunn. And so Paul H. Dunn as a general authority, member of the 70 tells all these stories where he's a professional baseball player and he's playing, you know, alongside all these other hall of fame ball players and how he was in the military and, and, you know, covered up a grenade or did this or did that. And, and then come to find out all of his stories were uh, were fictitious and made up. And it it certainly takes away from the real power of the gospel when we use fictitious stories put across to the audience as as real and, and historical uh when when it's discovered that those things are not quite as they were told. 
you, you set people up for a bigger fall than had you not told the story to begin with. Well, I agree because I think that these kind of stories, by the way, the only difference really between Paul H. Dunn and these gentlemen, as far as I can tell, is that Paul H. Dunn's stories were highly fictionalized and sensationalized, but they were also very self-aggrandizing. He was the hero of his stories. But these gentlemen don't make themselves the heroes, but rather it is the church that's the hero, the the miracles that are happening within the church and related to the church that are the miracles. But that's really the only difference that I can tell. They still seem to be highly sensationalized. And the fundamental danger of stories like this being told in the church is that this entire church is based upon the telling of miraculous foundation stories and events whether it's the first vision, whether it's Moroni in the gold plates, whether it's the restoration of the priesthood, on and on and on. Miraculous foundation stories. And when leaders of the church get up and are caught off first base, fabricating details and telling things in a certain way to make commonplace events sound miraculous, what they end up doing is challenging our faith in the truthfulness of the miraculous tellings of the foundation events. In other words, if they're going to take regular stuff and make it sound miraculous today, why should we not think that the same thing happened with the miracle stories that we're told about the foundation of the church? Right. And and I want to hold out hope that in the next coming days and maybe weeks, that the church will recognize there's a discrepancy here and they will, they will put out some additional information that clarifies how, how these two stories told in conference are accurate and, and are real and that's, and they are historically sound and somehow mesh and reconcile with the data that's out there for everyone to look at. Okay, well, we'll see if that happens. We shall see. <laughs> Sorry. Right? No, no, I hear you. I just, you know, I, I want to try, you know, one of the things I'm always trying to do is try to find some sp- sp- space of room for things to be okay and to still be good even when things don't add up in other places. So we shall see. We shall see if... uh if the church makes an effort to kind of help help those of us diving into the data to to know, of course, I, I could be a smart aleck here and say maybe we just should pray more and read more of the Book of Mormon, um, <laughs> and, and that would tithing. solve this, right? And pay more tithing or pay pay our tithing more regularly, and that would solve these issues. But again, I think there's questions here. I think they're honest questions. I think they're they're sincere and and they deserve to. Uh, be addressed and they deserve to be honored and and we're a church that honors questions and so I I look forward to hopefully some information coming out okay fair enough I share your Um, yeah so the other thing you too there was another theme you wanted to hit on correct there was something else going on in conference that kind of ties into maybe Uchtdorf and some of the other stuff that was going on okay well here's what I wanted to tell you once again I've studied this conference more than any other conference and as I did so Certain themes came out to me, certain ideas and concepts that were repeated by different speakers throughout the conference. And the ones that stood out to me 
or perhaps not the normal ones like faith or repentance. I mean, there's Bruce R. McConkie who's suddenly getting resurrected right and left by different speakers. I think that there's some, there's obviously planning in that. There's also a pushing of um, this, the the 2000 document signed by the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency called the Living Christ. That came up a couple of times. But the other things that I'm talking about here are, are stories. First off, the first theme is stories talking about how the church is more important than anything else in the world, including your family. Now, this is a, a dichotomy in the church because the church will say the family is the most important thing, and they will run commercials between the sessions of conference talking about how the family is the most important thing, and they have the humorous commercials and ads, and I'm sure you've seen them at some time. Anybody has who's watched during the two sessions of conference. But this is the outward message of the church. But when it comes to telling the stories of faithful members of the church, every single story, without exception, by the way, every single story told about faithful members in the church emphasized that the church was more important than anything else, including their families. And I counted six or seven of these. I'm just going to hit these really quick, okay? Please, I, want, um, I was going to ask you for examples. So the first example is Sunday morning, Elder Joseph Brough, B-R-O-U-G-H, where he talks about the fact that when he's 14 years old, he lives in Wyoming on a ranch with his folks, and he's got this wonderful dog named Blue, and he just goes fishing and hunting and exploring with his dog. He's very close to his dog, and his dad gets a call to be a mission president. He has to give up his dog. Because for whatever reason, they're not going to allow him to take his dog with him. And when he found out that he had to give up his dog, he says, I confronted my father, asking what I should do with Blue. I wanted to emphasize the unfairness of what God was requiring. I will never forget this response. So this is what his dad tells him. His dad says, I'm not sure. He probably cannot go with us. So you had better ask Heavenly Father. This is apparently the response of a father to his 14-year-old son, who now has to give up his dog because his father's getting called on a mission and he's going to have to go with him. And then Elder Brow says, that was not the response I had anticipated. I began reading the Book of Mormon. I earnestly prayed to know. By the way, notice how this thing comes up, remember? What is the response when you have a crisis in your life? Read the Book of Mormon every day. Don't tell me these things are not planned in advance. I began reading the Book of Mormon. I earnestly prayed to know if I had to give my dog away. My answer did not come in a moment. Rather, a specific thought kept penetrating my mind. Don't be a burden to your parents. Don't be a burden. I have called your parents. So this is the first story. A 14-year-old boy has to sacrifice his beloved dog. Why? Because the church is more important. And the call to serve... Um, to be a president of a mission, more important. And apparently there's no way that this dog could go along. I don't know what the details are there, but that's the message there. Going on now, and I'm scrolling down because I've highlighted these differently. Oh, President Russell M. Nelson, and this was at the end of the Saturday morning session. This is where he tells a story about a Laurel, 16 to 19-year-old girl. Isn't that the right age, Bill? Yeah, that's yeah. Laurel would be um, 
Right, you've got Maya Maids, you've got, what's the other one? Beehives and Laurels. So Laurels are the oldest, so the 16 to 18-year-olds. Yeah, it's basically a high school-age girl who's in the church who is participating in a statewide competition for her high school. Now, he doesn't say what this competition is for. He doesn't say if it's uh, music, choir, athletics. He doesn't say whether she's just doing it herself or whether she's on a team. But here's what he says, and I'll just read this real quickly. Recently, I learned of a fearless young Laurel. She was invited to participate in a statewide competition for her high school. On the same evening, she had committed to participate in a stake relief society meeting. Now, we've been members of the church for a long time, Bill. We know that participating in a stake relief society meeting, I mean, so? What is she... Is she going to give a closing prayer? Is she going to be singing? Is she giving a five-minute talk? We don't know because President Nelson doesn't tell us because that's not important for his story. What is important for his story is to contrast a church function with a non-church function. And it doesn't make any difference how small the church function is or how big the non-church function is. The message is, you choose the church regardless. And he goes on to say that that's what you did. When she realized the conflict and explained to competition officials that she would need to leave the competition early to attend an important meeting, she was told she would be disqualified if she did so. What did this Latter-day Laurel do? She kept her commitment to participate in the Relief Society meeting. As promised, she was disqualified from the statewide competition. When asked about her decision, she replied simply, Well, the church is more important, isn't it? So here the message is, the church is more important than anything else in the world, even if it's a once-in-a-lifetime high school statewide competition. We don't know if she's letting down herself if she's letting down teammates. And the one thing that my friend who was watching this with me said, well, shouldn't the people in Relief Society be set to be telling her, hey, we've got it covered. We'll find somebody else to do it. You go do the statewide competition. We'll be fine. Right. There's a whole lifetime of Relief Society meetings to go to. Oh, my gosh. And yes. So that's the second example. Here's a third one. Elder Gary Sabin, S-A-B-I-N. Here's what he said. Um, this is a very brief one. Near the end of the war, President Heber J. Grant called for missionaries, including some married men. In 1946, Dale and his wife, and he's telling a story about somebody else who'd been converted to the church. I think it was through the efforts of his dad. But in 1946, Dale and his wife, Mary Olive, decided Dale should serve, even though they were expecting their first child. So here you've got a married man. His wife is expecting their first child. He's called on a mission. What is the decision? What is more important? Well, you leave your wife, your leaguer pregnant wife behind. You go off on your mission because the church is more important than your wife. It's more important than your soon-to-be-born first child. That's the message. Going on to the next talk with Elder Valerie Cordone. Oh, did we talk about this one before? This is the one that really got a lot of traction. We're I don't think so. Okay. Well, you remember this one. Let me let you take this one, okay, because this is the one about tithing. Um, I appreciate that. I've just pulled it up here just to look at it. 
Um, again, uh, Elder Valerie V. Cordon uh, of the 70. And in his talk, one of these ideas of, again, choosing God, choosing the church, choosing the institutional uh, boundaries over over other things. Um, he has this this section. It's right in the middle, and it's titled "Second uh, Strong Modeling in the Home." He says one linguistics expert wrote that to preserve a native language, you need to bring the language alive for your children. We bring language alive when our teaching and modeling work together. When I was young, I worked in my father's factory during vacation. The first question my father always asked after I received my salary was, what are you going to do with your money? I knew the answer and responded, pay my tithing and save for my mission. After working with him for about eight years and constantly answering his same question, my father figured he had taught me about paying my tithing. What he didn't realize was that I had learned this important principle in just one weekend. Let me tell you how I learned that principle. After some events related to a civil war in Central America, my father's business went bankrupt. He went from about 200 full-time employees to fewer than five sewing operators who worked as needed in the garage of our home. One day... During those difficult times, I heard my parents discussing whether they should pay tithing or buy food for the children. On Sunday, I followed my father to see what he was going to do. After our church meetings, I saw him take an envelope and put his tithing in it. That was only part of the lesson. The question that remained for me was what we were going to eat. <laughs> Early Monday morning, some people knocked on our door. When, open it, when I opened it, they asked for my father. I called for him, and when he arrived, the visitors told him about, about an urgent sewing order they needed as quickly as possible. They told him that the order was so urgent that they will pay for it in advance. That day, I learned the principles of pain tithing and the blessings that follow. And, I, and it's all good and dandy when these instances work out and miracles happen and everything goes fine. But it, it should be recognized like when there's a conversation among parents and the children are within listening distance. And the conversation is, we have to choose between feeding these children or paying our tithing. Like, I'm trying to picture, one, kind of the unhealthiness of that conversation. And on two, I'm trying to picture a loving Heavenly Father and knowing that not all things in life work out the way we hope they do. And how we often, you know, when someone has cancer, they get a blessing, but they don't get healed and they, and they die. Like things just don't always go the way we want them to go and miracles don't always happen and things don't always work out in the way that we, th- we think or hope they should. 
the reality here is, man, if, if I'm in that predicament, like I, I hope I would have faith to figure out an answer for both problems, but I'm also just not going to sit by while my kids go hungry. Yeah, right. And of course, anytime the big miracle doesn't come through in the ninth inning, those stories do not get told in general conference. And and the other thing you need to add is that if one understands the history of tithing, where tithing isn't necessarily gross or net, and tithing is paid annually on your increase, and when we recognize that Lorenzo Snow, I think it was, said that every man, woman, and child who has means should pay tithing, then we also realize to some extent this concept actually begins to kind of mess uh, with the doctrine of the gospel. And and so I want to pull this up. I, I was just thinking of this the other day as we were talking about going over this, and I'm glad that you stopped us and had us go into this talk. There's So he's he's teaching that someone should pay their tithing before their bills and needs are taken care of. Uh, specifically buying groceries and food so that your children don't go hungry. And Elder and Elder Oaks back in 1999 gave a talk titled Gospel Teaching. And this is what he said. Teachers who are commanded to teach the principles of the gospel and the doctrine of the kingdom should generally forego teaching specific rules or applications. For example, they would not teach any rules for determining what is a full tithing, and they would not provide a list of do's and don'ts for keeping the Sabbath day holy. Once a teacher has taught the doctrine and the associated principles from the scriptures and the living prophets, such specific applications or rules are generally the responsibility of individuals and families. Now, I grant that this man is making an indi- the, the person he's telling the story about, his father, is making an individual decision. But when you share that individual decision in conference with the framing that you're giving it, I simply would say, like, I'm not saying he's doing it intentionally. I'm not saying he's doing anything even necessarily wrong because he's sharing a personal story of his father. I'm simply saying that the folks sitting in the, in the seats and the people listening to conference over their television or over the computer through internet, the message being given is that if you're really faithful, if you're, if you really have trust in God, You'll pay your tithing before feeding your kids, and you'll let the Lord work it out. And and what I'm suggesting is that maybe the better approach would be to let to teach the doctrine of tithing and not guilt people into doing it a certain way. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. And under this heading of the different stories in conference that I was going through, this theme of teaching that the church is more important than anything in the world, including your family, this is perhaps the most stark example of all of them because it teaches that the church, paying money to the church, is more important than feeding your children. Right, right. And and again, you know, we talked about the dog, and, uh, you know, a dog, is that's a horrible choice to have to make. That's a horrible choice for a kid to have to make. But 
what what even comes off as more unhealthy and traumatic is to not provide the basic needs for your children when you can and defer to keeping a gospel um a, a, a boundary that's only really seen this way perhaps within the LDS church and not really a cultural rule among humanity and then hope for a blessing that the church itself admits doesn't come to everybody who hopes for the blessing. Mm-hmm. And by the way, just on that last one we talked about where this uh, husband was called on a mission and he went on his mission even though his wife was pregnant, if you take the church out of that story and a guy leaves for years, his wife who's pregnant, what would that be called? Uh, probably neglect. Yeah, I would call it desertion. But because the church is involved, and because he's going to sacrifice his wife and his child for a church calling and a church mission, now it becomes noble what would otherwise be despicable. Right, and I should add that I know somebody out there is going to think of the counter-argument of saying, like, what about somebody who goes off into the military? But the difference is that the military is still paying that person an income so that they can still provide for the needs of their wife and children. Whereas when you go off on a mission, in this instance and in the instance today with our young men and young women, those folks pay to go off on a mission. And this person would have done so at his own cost and would have just hoped that the church would have taken care of his family while he was gone. Yeah, I think that's an important difference. Another difference I see is the difference in choice. If the military tells you, you got to ship out, you have no choice. You've got to go. But when it's a mission or something else, like your dog, then you've got a choice. And what the church, I think, is doing by repeating these stories over and over again is seeking to influence your choice to always choose the church over anything else. Yeah. And so so with that, we've gone over the two themes. We've hit all these talks in conference. I'm hoping that the listener by now will realize that we've also inserted some audio. Um, I, I'm, in other words, I'm hoping that I get a chance to put that in there and it actually makes its way. I think it'll make this much more interesting. But I really appreciate the discussion, the conversation we've had. We've gone through all of the sessions. We've talked about a lot of highlights and and I think you and I both agree Elder Uchtdorf's talk by far was the was the most inclusive big tent progressive Mormon talk uh given given in conference right Oh absolutely it was uh it was a record breaker of course the problem being that when you've got 10 hours of how many people talking uh 5 times 6 at least what, no, five times five, 25, probably more than 25 different speakers. The very fact you've got so many speakers tends to reduce the impact of any individual speaker, even Elder Uchtdorf. Right, right. He's such a small piece of the entire pie. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so we've gone through all these. We've hit on the highlights. I hope that the listeners enjoyed it. And, uh, I, you know, hopefully you and I get a chance to, to do this again maybe in six months. It will. And I tell you tell you, uh, this has been a real pleasure. I know we've gone on very long, 
I've got a ton more stuff to talk about. I won't do it tonight with you. I will spare you and the listeners that. But I may take the this extra material and put it into the next episode of Radio Free Mormon. Ooh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm always on the edge of my seat for for Sunday morning, hoping that one of your episodes come out. So I'm looking forward to the next one, and uh, we'll see what happens. Okay, I'll do it while it's still fresh on my mind. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been a genuine pleasure. Awesome. Thank you, Radio Free. Good night.